welcome to episode 42 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. In this episode, we're talking about technical speaking with Saran Yatbarak. Saran runs the Code Newbie podcast and community and organizes the Codeland conference. Saran and I both have some thoughts and opinions about how to deliver a good technical talk, and this episode has a lot of tips about how to prepare, what to do at the start of a talk, how to engage the audience, uh, why emoji are better for slides than videos, basically how to give the talk that only you can give and how to give the best performance that you can. Before we start the show, a few quick messages. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing, refactoring legacy JavaScript, and career development. For more information, go to the web at tablexi.com slash workshops or email us at workshops at tablexi.com. And I haven't mentioned it at the top of the podcast recently, but if you like the show, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts would be really helpful. Thanks. And now here's my conversation with Saran. Saran, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Hello, everyone. I'm Saran Yadbarak. I am the founder of Code Newbie, also a developer and a podcaster. I host a bunch of different shows, including the Code Newbie podcast, BCS podcast, and Command Line Heroes from Red Hat. All of which I have enjoyed. Yay! Wonderful. All recommended. <laughs> so we are not here to talk about any of those things. We are here to talk about uh, technical speaking and tips for how to do a good job in technical presentations. Now. The first time I saw you present, I actually remember very strongly. It was at RailsConf here in Chicago in 2014, and you did a fantastic job. Oh, thank you. And looked like you had been doing it for a long time. And so my, my, I guess my first question is, like, do you have other public speaking experience that you have brought to bear in your technical speaking? So that RailsConf talk that you saw was actually the very first time I did – any sort of public speaking. Before that, the closest I'd come to public speaking was, you know, doing like class presentations in college, like that sort of thing. And when I was younger, I did a lot of dance and theater. So I don't know if that counts, but, you know, I'm used to bright lights where I can't see anyone in the audience and I'm hoping no one is, you know, scowling at me. <laughs> Comfortable with being the center of attention. I, I, yeah. I, I have a little bit of a high school and college theater background and especially a little bit of high school and college doing stand up. Oh, neat. That's intense. Stand up? Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I guess, I mean, it's like, you know, you're like a college coffee shop. It's not, it wasn't exactly like a hardcore, but it does get you in the mood. It does get you used to being like looked at by an audience, which mm-hmm. I think is the, is one of the things that people need to get over. Yeah. So I, I wanted to talk to you in part because you just wrote a post on Medium about a very, very, sort of technical topic in terms of presentation about managing transitions. And I want to kind of lead up to that, though. What kinds of things do you look for in some other presenters or do you try to do specifically when you are presenting? Like, What are some of the things you try to make sure that you accomplish in the performance of a technical talk? Yeah. And that's a really good distinction, too, because there is like I think, you know, all talks are made of two parts, content and delivery. And the first step in putting together a good talk is recognizing that it is a performance. That's definitely, you know, number one. So with the the performance part of things, I think one of the the big things that I really try to focus on is to get people on my side early in the talk. A lot of the well actually I think all the talks I've given, I never position myself as the expert. I never position myself as the, you know, the the teacher here to 
you know, share this amazing information with you and change your life. Like I never put myself in that position. And so early on, both structurally and in terms of performance, I try to connect with the audience emotionally. And so in terms of content, that means, you know, sharing a little bit more about my story, a little bit about how, you know, who I am as it relates to the topic. But I think it also means, you know, making a few jokes right off the bat. You know, it means being a little bit more vulnerable. It means, you know, using my my voice, my body language, my pauses to appear, you know, um, endearing, friendly, accessible, those kinds of things. So I try to quickly make an emotional connection with the audience. And then when I get to the more serious stuff, the more factual stuff, or maybe just the new stuff, the audience is ready to receive it. Yeah, when, one of the one of my stand up tricks when I was a college stand up, you know, a bajillion years ago was that I would walk out with a tape recorder, explain to everybody that I was recording it for my parents, and ask them for one really big laugh. That is amazing. Kind of three to start. That is so good. Yeah, it gets people on your side and it kind of primes them to do it. And I, and and you know, yeah. people do things like that in technical talks too. I've seen people say like, you know, uh, when I get a a drink of water, everybody should applaud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that, that kind of thing. And I think, yeah, I think it's very important to start from a position of trying to make that connection with your audience. You, know, you, you open with a joke is like sort of cliche mm-hmm. presentation advice. And my, I usually say like, you open with a joke, but make sure it lands. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I spoke at Oscon, uh, it was two years ago. I gave uh, I gave a keynote there, and um, I started. I don't remember how I connected it to the to the talk, but I started by talking about nervous pooping and <laughs> how uh, nervous pooping is a very natural part of the speaker journey. And if you're going to do any type of performance or, or speak, you will probably nervous poop at least once. For me, it's twice before every presentation. It's normal. Uh, and, you know, I thought it was like funny. I thought it was like, you know, a, you know, kind of a, a lowbrow icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> but it got a way better reaction than I thought it was going to. Like a way bigger reaction. And people, I, I almost feel like that was the, the thing that people liked most about the whole talk was the nervous pooping. I mean, like all my tweets, all my mentions, notifications afterwards were all like, oh my God, the nervous pooping was the best, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, that works. That's something I keep in my back pocket now that I know that developers like talking about nervous pooping. <laughs> yeah, I think in that case, part of it is like the surprise of <laughs> that being at a topic, you know, it would not be what I would be expecting to get, you know, walking in the yeah. room. So how word for word memorized are you normally in a talk? And what do you norm- what do you recommend people do? Yeah, that's a great question. So I know that there's, you know, common speaker advices don't memorize your talk. I think memorizing is a great thing to do, especially if you're new to speaking. What I do is I start by writing a rough outline of, you know, high level what I want to say. And then I go in and I write basically word for word every single sentence that I want to say. And it's from that script that I end up creating the slides and I kind of pull out, okay, which of these points needs its own slide, which needs its own bullet point, what point needs to be seen versus heard. You know, that's kind of, I use that script to, to plan out the, the visuals, you know, the slides. But that script is also really important because it's when I write it down that certain themes become a little bit more obvious. It's when I write it down that I, I find a couple of phrases or some, you know, a couple sentences that are really, really powerful. And it's through that writing process that I can kind of suss out, okay, I need to make sure I, I use this word. Oh, you know, I, I notice I accidentally keep coming back to this idea a few times. Let me move that idea to the top. You know, it's not until I can 
see the script word for word that I can really get a, a deeper sense of the flow and the the feeling of the talk. But I rarely do a talk that's purely memorized. So I will go back to that script. I'll memorize it to the point where I don't need to, you know, I don't really need to say it word for word. I memorize it to the point where I know it so well that I know the essence of the talk and I can kind of freestyle, you know, the delivery of it. So I remember, you know, like every single point, there's certain transition phrases that I try to actually hit every single time. But the idea is that you know the script so, so well, you don't have to actually use it. I definitely think the most important part is being comfortable enough with the presentation that you can adjust on the fly a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't write things down word for word anymore, although I used to. I find that, at least for me, I can't match the cadence of my talking in writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think maybe it's just because I'm used to being my writing voice being like super explainy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and so I usually write an outline in deck set. So it's going right into slides. And then I just like talk it through over and over again until it feels stable to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I feel like the only thing that I tell people about memorizing stuff is that you have to be comfortable enough that you're not actually repeating it word for word because most people are not skilled enough performers to read something word for word or recite something word for word to make it sound like that's not what they're doing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it also depends. So, like, I've seen very well done memorized talks. And, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like if you have to choose between a memorized talk that sounds scripted, you know, it's kind of, it's pretty clear that you memorized it, but you still have control over your voice and you're pausing at the right time and your voice goes up and it goes down, you know, you're able to still do those things mm -hmm. versus kind of winging it and just having it be all over the place. <laughs> I'd rather a scripted organized talk versus a charismatic. Yeah. I think a lot of this eventually comes down to like being what makes you most comfortable Mm -hmm. in that yeah. situation. And you hit on something that I think is really important, which is your voice goes up, your voice goes down, you pause. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that causes people to check out of a spoken presentation is monotone, consistency and rhythm. And if you, you know, change your pitch and change your tempo and things like that, then people are much more likely, I think, to hang on. I think you can sometimes get a lot of attention just by being just by a really long pause mm -hmm. at the right time it can be really effective. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, maybe even easier than that is to react to your own words. You know, I feel like when I was working, um, so I, I produced the, the conference called Land Dinner for two years now, and I personally coach all the speakers, all the right. workshop leaders. And one of the things that I, I kept saying to everyone was, tell me how you feel. You know, like, I want I want to know how you feel. Tell me how you feel. And there's so many places where it'll, at least for example, you know, um, if you're writing a talk about what it feels like to, you know, get stuck, right? To get stuck on a bug and you just can't figure it out. It'll, you know, the, the talk will read something like, and the bug was really hard and it needed to be figured out versus I had a hard time with this bug. I was frustrated that I couldn't figure it out. You know what I mean? Like just really simply changing it from the fact of, you know, the fact that it happened to how I responded to that fact immediately makes it more interesting and more personal. Right. It's back to the emotional connection mm -hmm. you talked about, you know, at the, at the beginning. It's giving people a reason to listen because you're, yeah. you're telling a compelling story. Yep. What other things do you commonly wind up telling people in the coaching sessions? When people give a, a talk, I think 
you know, unlike a, a blog post or a Twitter thread or anything, you know, very visual, I don't know where I am in your talk. And so one of the things that I tell people all the time is to give me some direction, give me some clue, some sense of where I am in your talk. So, and, it, and this is very, very simple. This is as simple as saying, next, we're going to blah, 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 right? Or to say, but if you, you know, just adding the word but in there says, okay, the next thing you're about to say is, you know, in opposition to the thing you just said. So one of the things is just, you know, signaling, just, just giving me some, some, um, some signposts, some idea of where am I going? Where am I right now? Are we still within that same point that you have been making this whole time? Have we moved in a totally different direction? Are we on to a new segment? And sometimes that's the slides. That's simply, you know, adding numbers instead of bullet points. That's, you know, color coding things. So using, you know, if you have, for example, three parts of your talk and each part has, you know, five points, then when you introduce a new part, a new section, you use the same background color, for example, right? Right, so or you use I the same it, outline slide with the point you're in highlighted so you can yes, track the yeah. direction. Yeah, exactly, that level of consistency. And then now when I'm within a section, now maybe I'm back to my you know, white background with my bullet points. Just little visual clues like that are so, so valuable. But then also in the words that you use, how do you transition from one idea to the next? You know, a lot of times I'll work with the speaker and halfway through, I'm like, wait, where are we? Where are we headed? How, where are we going? And it's not that you want to give away the ending. You know, sometimes if the ending is surprising or interesting, you do want to maybe be a little bit more obtuse. But in general, you never want to have your audience feel disoriented. And when you're giving a talk, it's a lot easier to feel disoriented. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, f I feel like it's easy to underestimate how long a talk is relative to a blog post, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you think about it, like a, a, a long medium post is like a five minute read, right? Mm -hmm. We consider that like a long read. Yeah. And a talk is, you know, six or seven or eight of those put together. And, and so you do have a certain responsibility to make sure this is like the, uh, the cliche advice is always tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them what you told them. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't have to be that structured, but if people can like look up from their laptops and see a, a hint from the slide as to like sort of where they are mm -hmm. in a presentation, that's that can be very helpful. I also feel like you know one of the things that makes talks really hard is that a lot of times they're just too long. They're way too long. Like at Codeland, our talks are 15 minutes. Um, even our keynotes are really only like 30, and that's as long as you know mm -hmm. I, I ever want a talk to be. Most talks do not need to be 30 minutes. Most talks can be 10 to 15 minutes. And especially as a newer speaker, you know, if you only have 15 minutes and it doesn't, you know, doesn't feel like a lot, but you realize, wow, if I'm really disciplined and really purposeful about the points that I make, I can put a lot of information in that 15 minutes. So I think, you know, part of what makes a talk hard is if you have a 30 minute you know, time slot to fill up, you end up filling it with, you know, fluff and you ramble and you tell me all about, you know, your life and your cat and how you like to make socks at home, you know, like all kinds of just unneeded, unnecessary, uninteresting things and irrelevant things to your talk. So I think part of it is dealing with just filling up or the pressure to fill up a time slot. Yeah. And that, again, like that sort of filler makes it harder, you know, to have the audience like follow you on the through line. Yep. Through the talk. I have mixed feelings about that. Like I definitely see, like I've been to 40 minute talks. It could have easily been 20 minute talks. On the other hand, like, I like talking in front of people for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other pr 
problem, you know, is I feel like a lot, a lot of times I'll listen to speakers. And I'm like, you're just here because you want to hear yourself talk. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not really. I mean, me. I'm not just here to hear myself talk. It's, it's, uh-huh. it's a bonus. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I'm here because I think I have something, you know, useful to say, I hope. And that's the, like, I also think like focusing very clearly on, on that, on, on why you are there to bring this to like a serious point, as opposed to me wanting to hear my own voice. To be thinking about like why are you giving this talk? You know, what information are you really trying to convey? What do you want people to be able to do or know at the end of the talk that they didn't know at the beginning? Is a really good way of structuring talks. It's also a really yeah. good way of structuring an abstract, by the way. And also, you know, the other side of that is not just what is it that you want to say, but who are you saying it to? And that is huge. Like the audience itself is is a huge thing that I feel like a lot of speakers don't think about enough. One of my favorite examples of, of just when this happened really well was uh, this year we had Jen Simmons give a talk on CSS Grid. And, you know, Jen is a pro. I mean, she's as pro as pro gets. She's amazing, international speaker, award-winning speaker. She's great. And I was working with her on her talk and she had given a talk um, at a different conference that was comparing CSS Grid with just the history of, you know, CSS layouts in general. And I watched that talk and we, you know, had a couple conversations about how to modify it for this audience and, you know, how to tweak it so it was um, just more relevant and just easier to, to chew on and digest. And when she gave her talk, I was just blown away at how just how great of a job she did on, you know, not just having a really great talk, but really, really paying attention to the fact that my audience is new developers and new speakers, uh, not new speakers, but well, I actually new speakers too. Um, but, you know, new programmers and people who haven't spent, you know, years working on layouts and don't really have that context. And because I knew what the original talk looked like, I knew all the work that she'd done to tweak it and adjust it and make it an amazing fit. And, you know, it was things from just removing certain buzzwords and jargon to, you know, just herself kind of playing this more... I want to say more uh, more of a student role, you know, whereas in the previous talk, she came off as like, I am the expert and, and here's what I'm, I'm, sh- I'm teaching you. Whereas with our audience, it was more of, hey, let's have fun and let's, you know, figure this out together. And just, it was an amazing example of how to modify really interesting content, but make it so relevant and so engaging to a, to a very different audience. I think that it's really, I think that it is even more important in a, audience to, to an audience of relative beginners to make the point of explaining the why of the topic mm-hmm. in a way that sometimes you can assume that experts are going to come in and understand why you're talking about the thing you're talking about. I actually just had a weird experience or, uh, where I gave a talk on Ruby testing that I had previously given at a Ruby conference in front of a polyglot audience that really was not any Ruby developers. Mm. And it only kind of dawned on me as I was starting <laughs> That the audiences were going to be very different, and I was, yeah, you know, I had to uh, adjust on the fly, sort of the definitions, and and also to like calibrate their expectations as to the kind of thing we were talking about, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah, you have to. It's something that you definitely have to pay attention to. Yeah, I like the um, the point about focusing on the why because. You know, and I'm primarily focusing on, on new developers, but if you're talking to a very, you know, senior technical audience, you, you could probably skip a lot of the context stuff and just kind of get right to the code. But I think the default should always be to explain what is the problem that we're trying to solve on a high level and then present the solution. And what I find so often is that talks tend to get to the solution first. 
and they're really excited about, you know, their demo or their app or the tool that they built. And the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm like, but why do I need this? And, you know, where, where would I use this? And is it, is it, is it even for me? Right. If I'm a, a Ruby developer, is this, is this for, for me? Is it for you? You know, it's just, it, it, you can clarify, you know, a lot of that just by starting with, you know, I had a hard time doing blah, blah, blah. So I made blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. Context set. I know, you know, where I am. I know why we're here. I know where this is going. Um, so yeah, setting up the problem first is is huge and something that I feel like a lot of speakers miss. Yeah, I think that it becomes there's a like a, a, an internal feeling when you're doing stuff like that that is just setting context or even just sort of doing waypoint, you know, wayfinding in the speech, in the talk yes. mm-hmm. that you feel like you're over explaining because you already mm-hmm. know it. Yeah, and yeah. and that's a, a internal voice that you really want to not pay attention to, like. It's very, very rare that I see a technical talk where somebody like over explains the context. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've seen yeah. that. <laughs> so what kinds of things do you like to have on slides? Um, so I'm actually, I'm a very uh, minimalist uh, slide designer. So I don't really have a lot of stuff. I have at most maybe three bullet points. Each bullet point is a couple words. Um, I rarely use images or graphics. I'm not really one of those people that does a lot of GIFs. Um, I like people who do a lot of GIFs. I just don't do it. But my whole thing is, you know, I like to use slides as my backdrop. You know, generally when I'm speaking, I want people to pay attention to me and to connect with me. And I try to make the slides as quiet as possible, frankly. You know, I use the slide to make sure you know where you are, to make sure you know the context of the talk. And, you know, if there are certain words or phrases that I really want you to pay attention to, then I'll write that, you know, I'll put that on the slide. But in general, um, yeah, I use maybe one color, you know, besides black and white, I'll use like one color, one font. And uh, I I tend to have actually a lot of slides because I go through them very quickly, but I put very, very few information in my slides. Yeah, I actually feel very similarly, a very, very similarly, uh, right down to the I want people looking at me, not the slides during the presentation, yeah. which I've always attributed to being a former stand-up ham theater mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. And and I think that sometimes people make louder slides because they're uncomfortable a little bit with yeah. the idea that people are looking at them and they want to have, you know, if you have a funny gif up there, that at least you have a funny gif and people mm-hmm. are going to laugh at it, which is fine. Like if that makes you comfortable, that's fine. I actually, I, I broke down and I put a small video in the most recent talk I gave and it did get the biggest reaction of anything I said during the talk. And I did feel a little bit bad about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing is I, I don't think that speakers appreciate that the more information they put on the slide, the less they are paying attention. Like, I don't think they realize that the audience is making a decision. They're, they almost always have to pick between you and the slide. And if you open up with a slide that has, you know, a paragraph, the first thing the audience is going to do is try to read it as fast as possible before you change the slide to make sure that they they did their job, right? Like you've basically given them homework, (laughs) you know, every slide that you put up, the more stuff you've given, you know, you put on there, the more homework you have given your audience. And, you know, especially when I'm working with newer developers, uh, newer speakers, they just don't understand that. They just don't understand that you've given them an assignment. They cannot read the paragraph and listen to it at the same time. And they're going to almost always pick reading the paragraph and then listen to you. 
you know, and, and that is, that's the compromise. So once you know that, I think it becomes easier to say, oh, you can't do both. You can't read and listen. Okay. In that case, let me just put what you actually need to read and then you can listen to me. I think that's a really, a really good point. And, and I think one of the points of the transistor, if I am remembering it correctly, one of the points of the medium post on transitions was to time your slide transitions so that they're like minimally invasive to the text yes. of your talk. Yes, exactly. Like I think that bad transitions are a huge source of, uh, of, of, of disconnections, right? It, it, all these moments where the audience disengages, walks away from, has to reorient themselves. And that's the thing that I'm trying to prevent the most. And so, you know, every time that you have a slide with a lot of words on it, for you know the the two seconds, three seconds, maybe even a minute, depending on how much is on the slide, your audience has disconnected from you, and now they're just focused on reading, right? And now they have to come back to connecting with you, which is hard because they don't know what you just said. They're not sure where you're going. You could be in the middle of an idea. You could be at the end of that idea, and they just missed it. So you're you know there's a there's a disconnection there, and that is the thing that we're trying to prevent. So with uh, with the slide transitions, it's the same idea. It's you know when you finish your idea, you click to the next slide, and then the next slide is a whole new idea, and you haven't really thought through how to bridge the gap. Now, the audience is reorienting. It's, okay, we just finished that. Okay, wait, what's this next thing? What's on the slide? What's she saying? Right? And there's there's a disconnection there. So if you work on the, you know, bridging the gap, but then also clicking at exactly the moment when the second slide matters, there's no opportunity for the audience to disconnect. Right. And that's the kind of thing that takes a little bit of practice to get right. Yeah. And that's one of the things to work on in practicing. One thing that I found that I put on my slides a lot more than I used to and a lot more than I actually expected to is emoji. Mm, mm-hmm. Emojis are great. Emoji in part because they are they can cue reactions and they don't have that I'm reading homework response from the yeah. audience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I have often I've done a couple times things where like different topics in the talk will be kind of keyed to different emoji. And so I can put the emoji on the slide and it helps orient yes. you to the talk. And also like, you know, a reaction, like it's also a good, like punctu- using the slide as punctuation. I say something and I go to a slide that has an emoji reaction, you know, a shrug or a forehead slap or something like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think emojis are great. And that's something that I, I find, myself using more and also recommending more because, you know, a lot of times there are talks where the idea has shifted, you know, away from the slide that you're on, but you're not quite ready to introduce the next idea. You don't really want to give people words to read, but, you know, there's kind of this this gap where you want to maybe just more set the, the, the mood a little bit, you know, kind of establish a tone for what you're about to say. And that's a really great place to have an emoji where it's, you know, kind of ambiguous, but it's still recognizable. You know, it's not this new thing where you're like, what is that? You know, if you see a smiley face, it's like, okay, whatever is about to happen is probably in the happy category. You know, it's right. it's just enough info, but it's not overloading. Right. And then you're deliberately kind of playing with the idea that the audience is shifting attention between you and the slides. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I have long wanted to do a, a talk in the Stephen Colbert word mode where the slides were running commentary on what I was saying, <laughs> but it is so hard a form to pull off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do not know whether I'm like a good enough writer and presenter to do it. And I have not ever tried it in public, but it's something that I've always yeah. wanted to do because it seems like it would be a lot of fun if I did it right. 
But yeah, this is like a good challenge. Yeah, but just as a writing challenge, it's deceptively hard mm-hmm. to do yeah. something like that. Yeah. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. The couple times where I have seen people give talks where they try explicitly to break the mode of I am this speaker speaking in a conference room and, and try to do something that feels fictional or much more performative, I respect that tremendously because it seems very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about beginnings and endings. We, we, we mentioned open with a joke, don't open with a joke. I have come to not like opening with my name. And I try to do like mm. 30 seconds or a minute of something that is actually like compelling. And then I stop and I say, hi, I'm Noel. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I love that. I, I don't know how you like to do it. Yeah, I, I really like that. So I my talks are usually based on my own personal experience or, you know, something that I've either done or seen or, you know, that kind of thing. So for me, it usually makes sense to start with something like, you know, two years ago, I learned how to code and, and I just kind of, you know, use my own. I use like a, a little timeline of my bio to introduce why this topic is important. But in general, I think one of my biggest uh, speaker pet peeves is people who have like a slide for their bio when it's not related to the talk at all. You know, it's kind of like this obligatory, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I do for fun. This is what I don't do for fun. Okay, now let's start the talk. And to, like that is one of my just the things I hate the most because I feel like the first few minutes of the talk is the most precious. It's the most precious time. It's a time when your audience is most excited. The, they don't know what's coming. They have no idea what you're going to do or you're going to say. So you haven't you, disappointed them. You know, yet. you yeah. you you <laughs> exactly. You haven't disappointed them yet. They're excited. They're you know most open to receiving what you're going to say. So when you do this bio again, one that's not related to the talk, there's just kind of you know you just don't need it. It just feels like a waste. It feels like a waste of that precious right. opportunity. So I prefer, I you know I, I generally recommend people to just get right into the talk. Just just start it. Just literally start it. Start it from. You know, two years ago, I blah, blah, blah. Or the other day, I just just literally get right into it. Just the way that you would a novel or a movie, right? And that's the thing. I feel like when when people think about what a good talk looks like, I think they assume it needs to be similar to a lecture, you know, like a, like a college lecture, when really it should be similar to a, a book or a movie, you know? What movie have you seen when the first, you know, minute is spent with each character standing in front of the camera going, hi, I'm Bill. I am a lawyer. And in today's movie, I am going to murder someone. Like, that is, that's not how that works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a right. terrible movie, right? You realize that Bill's a lawyer because you're in a law firm and you see him go to work. You know, you, you pick up. It's on one thing stuff. to say, so, I used to work on NASA Cassini space probes and I'm going to talk to you about quality control. Exactly. And it's another thing to say, exactly. I like scuba diving. Let's talk about JavaScript. Yes. Ah, that, that's perfect. Yes. That is, that's my pet peeve. Yeah. So a lot of times it is relevant to talk about your background. A lot of times, as you said, it's, you know, I worked in NASA for 10 years and these are the kinds of projects I worked on. And one of those projects is this, and this is what I'm going to talk about. That makes a lot of sense. I've seen that a lot of, and, and I've heard, whenever I give this advice to, to speakers and say, hey, consider not introducing your bio at the beginning if it's not necessary. The main piece of pushback I get is the concern that if you don't explain who you are, then people won't take you seriously. 
that's the one thing where people say, well, if they don't know, so, and I, and honestly, I get this more from, from women, frankly, where they say, you know, if I don't establish that I'm, you know, a hardcore engineer right at the beginning, then no one's going to listen to what I have to say, which is kind of like sad. You know, that's kind of a, a sad thing that people will think about, but it makes sense. You know, if you're speaking to an audience and you want people to take you seriously, I get it. And to that, you know, I usually say if the audience is in the room, they have already decided that you're worth listening to. Like they've already voted for you, you know, they've, they've already, uh, you know, signed, hit the checkbox of, okay, this person knows what they're doing and I'm excited to hear what they're going to say. They've already made that decision. So if you're already on stage and you have a mic and you're about to start your talk, you don't need to reconvince anyone that you are worthy of speaking. That part has already been done. It's already happened. And then if you put your contact info on the slide at the end, it stays up for a couple seconds. <laughs> Exactly. And then people can actually, yes. if you are, you know, for instance, if you are me and promote often promoting a book with a URL <laughs> and you want it to like hang yeah. there for a minute, then you put it at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, hopefully the, the talk that you're giving, you know, you, you should be displaying your expertise throughout the talk, right? Like if you are kind of relying on just that first slide to show that you know what you're talking about, then to me that says there's opportunity throughout the talk to kind of wiggle that in to say, you know, I, I to say something like, yeah, we built this feature, you know, when I was working at NASA for 10, you know what I mean? Like you can, you can bring in your bio in ways that are actually contextually right. relevant throughout the talk uh, and not have to just do it at the beginning and kind of, you know, get rid of it. Right. Maybe scuba diving becomes important later in the talk. There you go. <laughs> what do you like to do at the end? I, I find I often struggle with the end of a talk that it, it winds up being, I wind up putting in kind of a mishmash of like takeaways and like, here's like mm -hmm. the kind of three things I sort of want you to remember from this talk that I just said. And I, I often feel like I haven't quite hit the ending of it the way that I want. What do you like to do yeah. at the end? So this is where a script becomes most handy for me. Because when I'm writing the script for the talk, I'm usually flushing out the meat of it, right? So if it's, you know, here's how I built this tool, then usually the script is mostly how I built the tool and what's step one, step two, step three, that kind of thing. But I don't want to end on, let's summarize the steps, which I've done before. And frankly, I don't think it was a very good ending. <laughs> I want to end on something more meaningful, a little bit deeper. And it's hard for me to figure out what that deeper thing is without seeing the rest of it. So what I'll usually do for the ending is I'll write out the script and write out everything but the ending. And then I'll review the script over and over again. And I'll see, okay, is there something deeper here? Is there a, um, you know, a more interesting lesson? Is there, a, is there a twist? Is there a theme? Is there something I can pull out that's not as, you know, straightforward as what maybe the talk might imply? And so once I review the script a couple times, usually I'll be able to pull out a theme or a lesson or something, and then I build my ending. So my ending usually has two parts. The first part is the summary you mentioned. So it's, you know, so, you know, in short, you know, it, it took, you know, 10 people, three years, well, you know, whatever the, the summary is. And then I'll say something like, but if we really think about it, this is a story about teamwork. And this is, you know, I'll try to like make it just a little bit deeper, a little bit more meaningful. And I usually like to pause at the end of that. And then I'll click to uh, the, the, the contact slide. So usually I'm, 
you know, I'll have like my Twitter handle, some code newbie info, and, you know, just like leave that up during the applause and stuff to say, you know, if anyone has questions, wants to reach out, then here's that. Yeah. I think one of the side effects of my practice, my writing method, which is essentially to just keep muttering the talk to myself over and over again until it gets, one of the downsides of that is that you don't cover the end as much. And I I actually think, I actually think that's something that you can often see in a speaker that they've practiced the first half Mm -hmm. of the talk a lot and the second half of the talk, not as much. And the talk, yeah, and it's, and, and the, the last yeah. half becomes, uh, and you can, I mean, like, I'm not saying here anything that I haven't done. If you go to look at, at the videos of my talks, there are a couple where you can clearly see that, like, the last 10 minutes just are kind of there. Uh, it's, it's a wrap up of the information, mm-hmm. but it's not anything more compelling. I mean, hopefully I've got yeah. you paying attention by then, mm-hmm. but I wish I had a better mechanism for doing that. Cause I think that, like, on some level, what I would say is like, well, then start midway through the talk when you some of your practice runs start in the middle. But I find that very, very hard to do. Yeah, it's much easier to practice the the first half of the talk than it is, you know, the the second half. And you're right, I do the same thing too. I'll, I'll write the script and then I'll just mutter it to myself over and over and over and over again. And it's you know between reading the script over and over and muttering to myself over and over. That's usually when I'll say, hmm, there's something you know more interesting, deeper, different more high level here that can serve a good ending. And, you know, that might be also a good time to ask people, you know, if you're kind of stuck on like, how do I end this? What is that deeper message? That might be a great opportunity to mutter to someone else, <laughs> you know, and see if they I, I will say that I think practicing in front of people is great. I have no problem muttering my talk to myself. I have no problem delivering talks in front of dozens or hundreds of people. Delivering a talk in front of one or two people, I find excruciating. <laughs> Oh, it's the worst. It's absolutely the worst. Yeah. I have so much respect for people because I you know, I know that that is a very, very good uh, strategy. Like I know it's a good strategy to practice it, you know, at, you know, sometimes it's like a brown bag lunch at work and it's just a couple people. Sometimes it's your, your partner or the person you pair with. Sometimes people go to, you know, local meetups, practice it in front of a slightly bigger crowd, you know, maybe 10, 20 people. But yeah, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm really comfortable alone and I'm really comfortable with Bigger crowds, anywhere yeah. in the middle. There's, not there's so an much. area, like I can, 10 or 15, it kind of depends on the group, but there's an area where, like, mm. the energy that you bring to a big room talk just feels silly mm. in front of one person. Yeah. It's like, yes, you know, absolutely. how's everybody yeah. doing today? Yeah. I'm fine, Noel. We, yeah. People in the back, raise your hand. Right. Yeah. right we just, yeah. It's just one. Room. Okay, wait. I had a couple of, the, like, like, specific pieces of advice that people like. Do you do the thing where you look for the person who's nodding along? Yeah, so my husband travels with me to most of the conferences I speak to, so he knows to sit at the very, very front. I'll usually call him out during, and I tell him, I'm like, your job is to smile the whole time, and if I freak out or get nervous or anything, I'm looking right at you. Yeah, so that's that's my that's my secret weapon for sure. Um, but yeah, when I when I gave that talk at RailsConf, uh, the first talk I ever gave, uh, I I had a, a nod, or you know, there was. Um, her name was Farah. I think I remember her last name, but she's actually one of the keynotes. So she came to my talk and I remember so vividly, you know, the, the thing also that, you know, if you haven't spoken before might throw you off is when you're on stage, especially in a really big room, the lights are blinding. Right. You can't see blinding. more than a row or two. Yeah. You can't see the audience. It's so weird. Like I, I'm used to it now, but it, oh my God, it used to really freak me out. But she sat in one of the few seats where you could actually see her. And I remember the light like shining, you know, across her face and she just, looked so happy to see me and she was nodding and beaming and I was so nervous. Oh my God, I was terrified. And I found her and I said, okay, Vera, 
this is for you. And I just focus the rest of my talk and my energy on her. Yeah, it's so helpful. It's I so feel helpful. like that is helpful not only because it makes you feel good to know that one person is nodding along, but also I feel like delivering it to a specific person helps with that connection, that it sort mm-hmm. of grounds it in a way that if you're just kind of delivering it to the back of the room, that it doesn't feel oh, like yeah. you're actually talking yeah. to somebody. It helps to feel like you're talking mm-hmm. uh, talking to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can't find that nodder, you know, it's, it's helpful if you at least know who's going to be in the room. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, just imagining that person. Like I've done that a bunch of times, especially if it's someone that I I really like and I really respect. I'm like, okay, I'm doing this to impress so-and-so, you know, I'll kind of just have that in the back of my mind. And then it just becomes, I, I feel more anchored. It becomes easier to say, okay, I'm doing it for this one person. The rest of you just happen to be here, <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, finding that one nodder or just that person. And it's funny that we both say that we like reaching for the one person in the room of a hundred, but that we hate performing for just the one person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is also the eye contact thing is weird too when it's just one person. So I'm like, do I just look you in the eye? Is this really just, an, you know, a, an over the top conversation. Yeah, I just don't know what to do with myself. How so. do you feel yeah. about your moving physicality during a talk? Do you like to stand behind the podium? Do you like to be uh, out and and moving? That's a good question. I'm always afraid of tripping. <laughs> so, um <laughs> that's like what like I always especially if I wear uh like I, I got some new um shoes, I think it was last year. These like lime green uh sneakers that are now my official conference sneakers. And the first time I wore them they were a little bit thicker than I was expecting. It was the first time I ever wore them out. And I just said, just don't trip, just don't trip, just don't trip. Like that, you know, that was my biggest worry. So it really depends on if I have a clicker and if I have a confidence monitor. So if I have a confidence monitor, which is basically just you know, a screen at the bottom of the stage that shows, you know, the, the next slide, um, the slide I'm can, on and the next slide. Yeah, I can tell you've done knows. this a million times because you needed to find confidence monitor before I even. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So if I have a confidence monitor, I do prefer being able to walk around. I just feel like I gesture a lot when I talk and, you know, it's much more comfortable to do that and to, you know, and I'm a natural pacer. So I like it as long as I have my clicker and my confidence monitor. If I don't have either one of those, I am sticking to the podium and I will not move. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I feel like part of connecting, emotionally connecting with people is people being able to actually see you. And when you're behind a monitor, especially depending on how tall you are and how high the podium is, a lot of times they can't really see you. You know, you're kind of off in the corner. Um, You're probably not that well lit. So, you know, it just, it's just harder to make an emotional connection. Yeah, I feel super blocked off when I'm behind a podium. And I do also tend to pace to the consternation, I think, of the camera people if they're recording the talk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I also yeah. I don't like being behind. When I, was, um, when I was in high school and I was doing the stand-up performances in high school in part for a drama class, we were practicing for it. And I had a couple of ticks of like movement where I would kind of sway. And one of the things that mm. they did to break me of it was they made me watch a video of myself and fast forward. Oh, interesting. That must have been traumatizing. Was that traumatizing? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been it's been like 30 years and I can still remember <laughs> it very clearly. So perhaps, yes. So yeah, you do have to be careful. If you're going to get out and move around, you do need to be careful because if you have some kind of quirk like that, people are going to pick up on it. And I definitely do and people definitely do. Um, so I say that again as something that, that is, is an issue that I, I have. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, I just don't like being behind the podium. I feel like I'm just ahead. Although there are times like when I do a new talk, 
being behind a podium definitely feels safer. You know, it's like, okay, you know, if I, if I mess up or if I look confused, people are less likely to see it. You know, I kind of feel a little protected, a little shielded, but especially if I'm giving a talk that I'm already comfortable with, um, I, I like being able to just use my whole body and use the whole stage and do that. What's interesting when you said, um, that you saw a video of yourself, uh, record, so I hate, I hate watching videos of myself, especially when I speak, I hate it so much, but, um, I, I watched, uh, only because it was really short, I watched like a, a three-minute short real clip thing of a talk I did recently. And what was so interesting is I did not sound the way that I sounded in my head. Meaning that when I remembered giving the talk, I thought I was using my voice way more. In fact, I remember thinking, I'm overdoing it. Let me, let me scale it back, you know, in terms of my inflections and my pauses and my, you know, my voice going up and down, that kind of thing. And when I watched the talk, it wasn't as, as, as exaggerated as I thought that it was. And in fact, I said to myself, you need to do it more. You need to use your voice even more. And so one thing I, I highly, highly encourage people to do is if no matter how painful it is, if you have a recorded version of your talk, actually go back and watch it because you'll realize that, you know, there, people say this all the time. They always say like, oh, I, I thought I talked really fast. I'm like, no, you talked the perfect pace. Or they'll say, I, I thought I talked really slowly. And I'm like, no, you actually talked too fast. You know, it's really hard to see how it comes off when you're giving it. And it's much easier to notice those little things that can make a huge difference when you're playing it back. Yeah, I completely agree. I try to watch all my talks at least once, specifically for stuff that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. As far as talking speed goes, I usually tell most people that they could stand to slow down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, especially because your t normal tendency is to be to speed up when you're nervous. And if you think about what you're doing enough to slow your talking speed down, first of all, you come off as less nervous, which is usually a good thing. I remember seeing Ira Glass gave the advice that he said that when he was having trouble like reading a script that it was just wasn't catching for him that one of his own tips is to like really deliberately try to slow his voice mm, down yeah in order to like sound to, to I don't know I don't remember the exact I'm gonna I'm gonna try and find it but the act of like being aware of mm -hmm. your talking speed mm, helped yeah. other aspects yeah, of the presentation I, you know, I think it's it's hard for people to talk slower but I think it's easier for people to pause. You know, it's easier to just remember, okay, after the sentence, I'm going to stop. <laughs> and you can even do that in your speaker notes. You can put, you know, you can put the word pause. So, you know, if you have trouble. Yeah, just don't read it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> just don't read it out loud. Oh, man, that'd be, that'd be funny. <laughs> but yeah, so if you are having a hard time figuring out, you know, how to slow down, or you think you're slowing down, but you're not slowing down, it might be easier to just focus on, you know, pausing, just taking a beat. Because even if you talk a little bit fast, if you give your audience a time to digest what you just said, you know, usually that's, that's yeah. what they need. That's the purpose of slowing down anyway. So that might be a, a strategy that that might work. Uh, we are coming up on time. So if you have like one other thing that we haven't talked about that you might want to give uh, one other piece of advice. I would say, yeah, I think that one of the, the biggest things that I've seen with speakers is I don't think that speakers understand how important they are to the talk, you know, whether it's coming up with the idea or figuring out how to structure it or figuring out, you know, what points to make. I see people try to be really technical and really smart and they kind of forget that their opinion, their feelings, their 
version of the story is honestly the most important and the most interesting part of the talk, you know? And so I think that a lot of talks end up feeling more generic than they need to be. And so my, my one tip and advice is figure out how can you tell the story through your experience, through your perspective, how can you make yourself the hero of your own talk? And I guarantee you that will make a much more interesting talk than it would otherwise. How can you give the talk that nobody else can give? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. And it's as simple as just, you know, starting with you and your experience and your context and just going from there. Okay. Saran, if people want to reach you in other places to continue this conversation or other conversations that you have online, mm-hmm. where can they find you? Definitely Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter, Saran Yitbarik. Also follow All Stuff Code Newbie. So on Twitter, we're actually Code Newbies with an S C O D E N E W B I E S. Great. I'm really glad we were able to put this together. Um, Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.